and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. And good morning. Welcome to Palm Sunday. And as we look at the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, this day is really an important day for me. Um, It was 50 years ago this day that I became a Christian. And I never would have guessed I'd be standing here um, sharing with you on this very significant day the importance of suffering. You might say that it was suffering that led me to understand Jesus, and I want to encourage you to be able to acknowledge that in your own life if you don't know Jesus. I know. I know what it's like to walk out there without hope. I know what it's like to have guilt. I know what it's like to feel like life just isn't leading anywhere or that situations are just overcoming you this morning, this morning. I hope that you can find hope in the passages we're gonna be looking for. But I don't wanna give any misgivings about what you're in for. And you will see people in this audience that will share in this. Following Christ is not such an attractive thing, is it, all the time? Jesus had no problem talking about what it takes to follow him. He didn't kind of give us a sugar coating of the gospel. Instead, he stated, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the road that leads to destruction. It was something people wanted to hear him say what they wanted him to say. But the reality was, what they wanted him to say would not take them where they needed to go. He wasn't afraid to say how difficult following him was going to be. In fact, he wasn't afraid to say how easy life is to the non-Christian world. You know, doing what you want, sensuality, drugs, party life, whatever. And how that leads to death. (laughs) Guess what? He also said about the religious life. That you can live the religious life so it's all about you and not submit to God and not repent and not look for a new truth. And it leads to death. So what does it mean, the narrow gate? Our passage this morning might give us some partial insight into this reality. First, I'd like to talk about a new movie that's out, The Jesus Revolution. I would encourage you to see it. It's a very interesting take on what God was doing in the 60s and 70s culture in terms of awakening the need for the gospel. The movie gives only a partial glimpse of this, um, but what really is attractive, I think, is the heroic examples of faith that the movie uses having known some of the peoples from that time, the actual people, I can tell you that there was a lot more that went into their life than what the movie portrayed. There was another path they had to walk to get to where they needed to be. And that included things like questioning, hard times, and having to deal with consequences of the decisions they'd made. This is where it gets a little tough. 
right? It's really hard to have so many people come and listen to the gospel and say, hey, 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 you know, there's gonna be hard times. You wanna join? <laughs> it doesn't really work too well. It's not a good marketing strategy, right? And so we find a lot of people that saw the Jesus movie or the Jesus revolution, most of those people that talk about its praises are Christians because they're looking for those heroic examples. Now, I heard that there was a lot of non-Christians that were attracted to the gospel from it, but I haven't seen any testimonies from them. I'm not saying they're not there. I hear a lot of Christians talk about non-Christians who are driven to tears. Any movie can drive you to tears, but does the cross drive you to see life from a whole new perspective. But we all know this reality, don't we? I look at the eyes in this audience and we all know what it costs to follow Christ. But let's just take a survey, okay? Okay, how many of you wanna share in the glories of Christ? Raise your hands. Ah, nice, okay, you put them down. That was easy, huh? Yeah. How many of you want to share in the sufferings of Christ? God bless you. Uh, you know, we come to this time of the triumphant entry and Jesus is coming down in Jerusalem, you know? It's a very big time. It's a time when people are, are waiting for him to take his reign as king. It is a time of hope. They have been literally occupied by the Roman government. And this is their chance to kind of set themselves free. But for Jesus, there was a different picture he was seeing. Now we know that because of his responses through this parade that he's about to go through. You know, for Jesus, he's there and they're all praising him and they're laying down the palm branches, anticipating his reign. And he goes down a little ways and what happens? The religious leaders say, rebuke your followers, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, if they're quiet, the stones along the road will praise me. So he's getting pushed back even on his parade. And then he goes down just a little further. Goes down and he looks out over the city. He knows what no one else knows. He looks over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, eternal peace was within your reach and you turned it down. His parade will end in the judgment of the organizers in the temple, particularly the money changers who were not of his name, you know, John one, he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. A betrayal from a friend, an agonizing prayer, and a false arrest. Yeah, but then when you think about Jesus, his whole ministry involves suffering. The very first thing that Jesus encounters, the temptations in the wilderness, 40 days, no food. He endured ministry through suffering, the rejection of his family, people trying to throw him off a cliff. Now, I have had many people not like me for some reason. I'm a nice guy. I've never had someone try to throw me off a cliff. He received constant pushback from the religious authorities. And yet, 
his path of suffering was for our redemption so we might know also what we would be in for. You know, you think about it, before he even gets to this point, he gave the examples to his disciples that whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Man, that, that must have flown right into the face of Jewish culture at that time. You know, they believed that suffering only belonged to the unrighteous. Those whose unrighteousness were deserving of hard times. Even his disciples said, who sinned, mother or father, because of an ailment someone was suffering from? And Jesus said, you don't understand. Neither. So we live in a society where, where many teachings come at us and say, you know, if you're really walking in the spirit, if you are a person of faith, you will not have to endure suffering. You will be able to triumph over suffering. But at the same time, we face this reality, this reality that there are spiritual attacks that create suffering. There's emotional and mental health issue that can disable you and impair you that you may not be healed from. There are physical ailments you may have to endure, maybe even leading to death. You may have to deal with bullying by others and living in our worldwide pagan culture. How do we deal with this? We smile. And of course we smile. It's the polite thing to do. We don't want to walk around being mopey and say, oh, you know, this has been so tough on me. It has been so hard on me. No. There's appropriateness to smiling. However, our passage today allows you to be validated for what you're going through and invites you to relax your smiles and allow his spirit to comfort you with some of these truths from 1 Peter, the second chapter. And if you would now just open up your Bibles or your Bible apps to 1 Peter, the second chapter. We're gonna be looking at verses 18 through 24 today. And while we're doing that, I wanna kinda of go through some of the background. You know, the believers that Peter's writing to are in Rome, and one of the things that they're enduring right now is they're enduring Nero's reign. If you know anything about Nero, he was a tyrant. I might even say he was a sociopath. You know, he did unbelievable torture to believers. Believers are simply living in hostile territory. Rome is identified by Peter as the new Babylon, a terminology that was used by prophets before him to describe any evil nation. In fact, the beginning of 1 Peter states that the believers are aliens in this world. In other words, their life makes no sense to them. They are enduring suffering through being devalued, insulted, enduring various acts of emotional and physical persecution. And yet, in all of this, in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7, Peter writes this to them. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Notice the definite. He doesn't say, you need to rejoice. They're living in this terrible situation. And he says, in all this you greatly rejoice. And why? Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, 
and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We might say that this book of First Peter is a handbook for Christian suffering. I mean, it's hard to turn and look or point to any part in the book that doesn't talk about suffering. But our passage today looks at what Christ endured for us, the pattern he displayed for us, and the expectation he set for us. And just a little footnote, it's surprising that with so many Sunday messages and with the New Testament full of teachings on the importance of suffering, we hear few messages on this subject. Let's begin together, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18 through 20. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. You know, this whole thing about suffering really kind of gets thrown in the face of contemporary Christian teaching, not ours, but you can hear it. Just listen to some podcasts. God wants you to be victorious over all adversity. Boy, it sounds so good, doesn't it? God wants you to be victorious. You know what? I believe God wants us to be victorious over adversity. I am definitely not saying that God abandons us in our need. But I am saying that that deliverance may not be what we think it is. I think of that deliverance more like in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles are being beaten or scourged. And, and they look up and they say, ha, we rejoice. We're singing because we're worthy of the sufferings of Christ. That's deliverance. Not the same path everyone goes down. There's something different about faith. There's something different about Jesus in our life. Another great teaching is that any experience of suffering is related to a lack of faith, sin, or other unpleasant experience, and it's a sign of something unspiritual. You know, this is so unbiblical, and it's something I have to face with people who come into counseling oftentimes because they think that something that's happening in their life is a result of what's happened to them or something that they've done, even though they know they've been forgiven, even though they know this is in the past, and somehow that guilt and shame they carry on, and somehow that's theirs. You know, that's just a tool of the evil one. And I challenge you again to find that anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere. The passages I'm going to deliver this morning hopefully will kind of assure you of that. And the last one, this is, this is a favorite one of mine. Pain is an illusion. Childbirth is an illusion. <laughs> All forms of pain are an illusion. We just have to kind of think through it and, and just kind of like smile and, and just pretend like it's not there. If we just do enough yoga, it'll end. <laughs> We can deny it, our reaction formate our responses, but that doesn't mean pain goes away, that bad times don't go away. Social constructs such as big boys don't cry are as ridiculous as good Christians don't hurt. You know, I think about great examples who lived through this reality, and um, I think about some of the people in our own congregation um, I'm not calling them out as examples. I've spoken to a couple of them. But I thought about you very deeply when I was um, working on this message. Um, it's just the incredible testimony you've had to your faith through your suffering. 
as an example this morning, though, I want to use two people. I want to use Melody Green and Rick Warren. Uh, Melody Green was the wife of Keith Green, and Keith Green was a very important evangelist, great preacher, and biblical scholar of our time. He had a prophetic tone towards him. He he changed the church and brought the church back to the importance of the Bible and what the Bible really said, not the wide road of trying to please people and look so attractive that it's so fake. He was an amazing man until one day he had promised his children a ride up in an airplane. And the next one is Rick Warren. Rick Warren is one of the most faithful pastors I've seen. I mean, how many people can start a mega church by sending out mailers, hiring six people with no money, and then having his first Sunday, and at the end of the first Sunday with the offering, they had all but one dollar left. They had an extra dollar. That's amazing. Everything he's done has been stepping out in faith. He wrote The Purpose Driven Life. Certainly God wouldn't put him through anything tough until his son who struggled with depression took his life. I'd like to invite you to look at some of their testimonies, listen to their pain. These are our fellow believers, and this is what Christ led us for. The, the plane crashed. Uh, we, had, we had company coming over, and they had promised their kids an airplane ride. I just remember that day, it was like unusually hot. And Keith came running down, you know, just busting through the doors, going, hey, we're gonna go up in the plane now. You know, and he wanted me to come with him. I said, nah, I don't wanna go. You know, you guys go and see you when you get back. And then Keith and I had this really odd conversation out of nowhere. Well, if I don't come back, he said, um, raise Rebecca to be a woman of God. And I said, well, okay. And so then I started thinking, well, you know, I'm pregnant. So I said, well, if you don't come back, if I have a boy, do you want me to name him after you? Suddenly I had to know that. And he goes, no, it's fine. You don't need to. And, um, and so they just drove off. It wasn't that much longer that I got a phone call from our secretary, and she said, Melody, the plane went down. And I didn't know what it meant, the plane went down. Does it mean they're just sort of tipped over somewhere? What, you know, what does that mean? And I just started driving up to the airstrip, and when I got up, I could see that everybody was running across the field because we had a lot of people there then. I got to the site of the of the crash, and I've, I was just like running through the woods. I didn't know where I was going there, but they were unclear, you know, East Texas woods. And I was standing there realizing that they were just gone. And I, I remember I walked up to the airplane, and I remember the Lord just stopping me, just saying, don't look, what do you want to see? You know, what do you want to remember? And I just kind of turned and, and walked away. The tragedy instantly claimed the lives of 12 people. The entire Smalley family, John, Dee Dee, and their six children perished alongside Keith, Josiah, Bethany, and ministry pilot Don Burmeister. Keith was only 28 when he died. And two of my children died with Keith also. And it's a different loss. Each was devastating, but for me, you know, to lose a husband and lose children,
are standing on the driveway hugging each other, sobbing, just sobbing. And Kay reaches down and she's wearing a necklace that has two words that are the words of the title of the book she'd just written, Choose Joy. And I look at her and I say, how do you choose joy? When your heart is breaking in a million pieces, how do you choose joy? The police came, broke the door down, found the, the inevitable bad news. They're carrying my sons out in a body bag. And I, if I hadn't had a small group, I, I don't know that I'd still be in ministry right now. My the reality. The reality is pretty simple. Jesus endured suffering. We will endure suffering. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. So some might ask, what is the purpose in prayer? You know, what was God intending Melody and Rick to experience and why? Did God set them up or turn his back on them? God didn't keep his end of the deal. Jesus addressed this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. This fallen world that man chose and continues to choose every day leads to suffering. No difference for Christians or non-Christians. The difference is he gives us purpose in it. He gives us meaning. You may ask yourself, how did I sign up for this? Well, someone signed you up for it, okay? Our passage begins, uh, I'm sorry, continues in 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It may be difficult to consider your calling being one of suffering, huh? I mean, people come up to me and say, hey, Raj, you know, what's your calling? Suffering, you know? But you can't get away from that. There's no way out of the reality of this passage. We were called to suffer. The reality of the contradiction of the irrational beliefs the world has that says that, you know, if you're suffering, you know, you know it, it, hey, you know, he saved others, let him save himself. If your God is so good, let him take you off the cross. How real is your God anyway? What difference is it for you? because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example you should follow in his steps. And what they do when they see this, they get angry because they don't think that that means that God is real or he's real in our lives. There is a major transformation that takes place in our faith that helps dispel this that we will get to as we go on in this passage. But the cross can be a major stumbling block for others and their anger towards God. I was speaking to a guy just two nights ago and he could not even continue the conversation because he was so angry at God through everything that he'd been through in his life that somehow he was owed something different. Yet Jesus set an example that we're all called to follow. His suffering was for our benefit, our salvation. Our suffering is for the benefit of his name, his mission, and other salvation. You know, Romans 8, 17 kind of attaches it to our identity of who we are. Look at these words. If we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if 
indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Suffering is not an exemption for the believer. Perseverance through suffering is the fruit and the testimony of the person who follows Jesus. He follows Jesus' path. Reality. You cannot share in the glory of Christ without sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus put it this way, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are those, you know, when, you are, when people insult you, um, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, when they revile you. So we understand that this is the pattern. Moving on in our passage, in verse 22, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus sets the example. First John is a sobering verse. First John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He suffered for nothing. He did nothing wrong. He did everything right, yet in Gethsemane, he prays, not my will, but your will be done. Don't take me out of this. Let me live for your will. His pattern was set for us to follow him in dealing with a fallen and hostile world. There was no sin, no deceit found in his mouth, but he endured. Isaiah 53 would prophesy about Christ years before Christ would ever come. Describe him this way, look at these descriptors. He was described and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And God did all this for us. And in doing so, he demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, not when we earned his, his favor, he died for us. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the word reviled was used, or when people hate you or they persecute you. It means to abuse, and it means continued abuse. There is no line, there is no line that says, well, I put up for it for this long, and then I struck back. Jesus didn't do that. There was no line. He continued to entrust himself to God. He didn't consider his own retaliation, but rather exemplified that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And then as Jesus was dying, he models this attitude. And he looks upon them and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. These words, once again, directed to his own. The officials, the religious leaders, and his betraying friend, Judas. Hebrews 11 is a powerful passage because it talks about people of faith, but it also talks about what they went through. 
And the stuff is just unbelievable, the things they suffered from, the ways they were persecuted. But it also says, you know, such men of whom the world was not worthy of. And then delivers Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why is this even necessary? Why does this have to happen? Well, we know that it does a couple of things that are very important. If his path is a demonstration of the past, we must follow, why? And let me just suggest that our display of faith during opposition unveils the reality and the truth about Jesus in our life. We don't have to pretend like we are victorious. We are victorious. We don't have to pretend that he makes a difference. He makes a difference. The author of this letter, Peter, will eventually be sentenced to death. In the typical Roman way, they will torture him horribly. They will make him watch his wife walk out in front of him to her cross first. And he will watch her be crucified. Historians record as this was happening, Peter had to have been so, so saddened by his wife's fear and everything else. He just says two words. Remember Jesus. You know what? That's good advice. Remember the path he set for us. It's so important to understand this, that, that this pattern of enduring through suffering is, shows the genuineness and contrast of our faith. It counters human nature. No retaliation, no threats, perseveres through pain, through faith, validates his truth and our belief in the goodness of God. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe he really loves you and he walks with you? Do you really believe that he died for you? Not to gain church membership numbers or political influence, but because he died for you? Then you've got to believe he's good. Because I'm not too sure if I could name too many other people who would die for me. I want to believe some would. But I won't want to test it. And as we suffer for him... I'm sorry, as he suffered for us, we suffer for him. Galatians 6.17, Paul put it this way, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. And yet, it's by his wounds we are healed, we are resolved. It resolves what's happening in the world, it resolves the purpose of life, and it resolves a much higher purpose. And there's something else that happens. Not only does it show the contrast, but we get to experience some, something that others can't experience, supernatural comfort. Blessed be to God who comforts us in all of our tr troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, also our comfort abounds through Christ. 
If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort and salvation, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. So what happens as we, we endure these sufferings, we kind of understand the presence of Christ in our life. We have a deeper sense of comfort that comes on us that we understand but it doesn't end there. We share it with others. That's why we endure it. We're all stuck in this world, guys. We're all stuck in a fallen world, but we're not stuck alone. This Holy Spirit is in us. Jesus died for us, giving us a pen fall, and we have each other. For those of us who have suffered, we have learned about the comfort of God, and, and you share that with others. I just want to say, you know, with the recent loss of Finley, I thank you so much for the prayers and the support you gave us. But the ones that really stood out to me were the people with tears in their eyes shared with me their experiences of loss. And man, I instantly connected with them and their confidence and prayers in a God who comforted them through what is still something that is very agonizing. So we, we, we suffer to learn about God's comfort and then we learn to share that comfort with others. And it's not easy either. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. You ever been there? Indeed, we felt we'd receive the sentence of death, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. Remember when I said, I believe that God delivers us? I do. But this is how he delivers us, so that we don't rely on ourselves. We don't rely on circumstances. We, we rely on him who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope and he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So before you all go out and try to suffer, <laughs> <laughs> better clarify a couple of things. First of all, suffering in and of itself does not make you closer to God, right? Um, there are some people that think they have to go out and they have to do self-abasement and those kinds of things. Somehow it's gonna make them closer. No, it doesn't. It's faith and practicing his presence that does. Hebrews states we have to be trained by suffering. Like I said, 50 years ago I became a Christian. I've been through several, many periods of suffering and each time I've learned about the goodness of who God is. The result of patterning our suffering after Christ is a training process that illuminates his reality that God demonstrated his love for us in our world and this truth directs us to rely on him. It paves the way for the fact that Jesus does make a difference. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the answer. He was the perfect sacrifice with the perfect attitude, having the perfect focus, making his example the perfect pattern to follow. By our experiences, we can comfort each other with the comfort God has brought us through. 
Peter contrasts suffering in 1 Peter 3. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. So the next time you suffer, think about what's going on. First Peter 4, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I want to suggest that the opposite of rejoicing is not weeping. Many say that your pain and emotional anguish is an indication of the flesh, and I would challenge you to find that passage for me. I will find passages that talk about weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Simply this, rejoicing and suffering means knowing that our suffering is reflecting the life of Christ and serves that purpose. That's what we rejoice in during times of loss or other kinds of suffering. Paul stated he had learned the secret, learned the secret of being content while in suffering need. So what we have to ask ourselves this morning, did the path Jesus followed help you see the path you were called to be on? Are you suffering for the right reasons? Then make the right choices. If you're suffering for the wrong reasons, I want to encourage you that, that we don't alienate you because we've all been there. But I would encourage you to allow the Spirit of God to transform you and glorify God in that suffering for he leads you to triumph over your flesh. It was just this morning in the first service someone was sharing with me about something that happened to them that was very tough and they ended up coming to Christ through it and everything else and changing their life through it. A mistake they had made. Fulfill your calling. Who wants to partake in the glory of Christ? Who wants to participate in the sufferings of Christ? If you are a Christ follower, then you cannot have one without the other. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to have suffer for him. Let me review quickly our three points this morning. Some takeaways. Remember what Christ endured or suffered for us. We needed help. We needed redemption because we were suffering in our self-righteousness. Denial. We thought we knew the way. And it was time to make him Lord. His suffering revealed the genuineness of his love for us and the validity of his claim to deity. His suffering showed us the serious price we could not avoid without him that required his death for our sin. The second point this morning is the pattern, to remember the pattern he displayed for us. We were called to suffering. Our suffering proves the genuineness of who he is in our lives to the world, a world that is desperately needing to know it. Our suffering trains us to experience God's comfort and our suffering has a purpose then to help other people in that process. 
Remember the expectation he set for us by his example. By understanding how our dependence on him is our deliverance and results in a supernatural spiritual comfort. And then it's by encouraging others when they are suffering. In conclusion, Christ suffered for us. To redeem us, show us a pattern for us to follow. And as his children, we will suffer for him as a testimony of our faith and the presence of his life in us will bring comfort and provide a platform to help others and provide a much needed light to a very dark world. Please pray with me, Father. Thank you so much for this passage, Father. And thank you so much for for the path you led for us. And help us to know that our faith and response is not avoidance of what the world we're in has us endure, but that you make a difference through what we endure. Father, help us to see you in all situations, to follow your example in everything we do. We praise you for this, Father. We praise you for those times where you draw near to us in our suffering need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.